Well, in just a few minutes, we will be in John chapter 9, but to get our thoughts going this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll make our way to John 9. In Matthew 5, we see the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the opening sermon in the Gospels, really recording the, the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. This is his, his opening message. Now, what we're going to do here just for a few minutes, this is sort of like a, a, a complicated meal. And sometimes you have to, we're, we're going to cook this together, and we're going to make some preliminary preparations here. We're going to do some chopping and mixing, and then we're going to set aside our mixture for a little bit, and we'll come back to it. But we need to prepare a few ingredients here that then we'll set aside and come back to. The, the Sermon on the Mount, this opening salvo of Jesus' ministry, it really initiates a return to what God has always intended for his people, and that is a return to the type of spiritual thinking that he's always wanted us to have. But Israel had strayed very far from this, and that is that all right behavior, all right conduct, all righteousness before God is first and foremost it's a matter of the heart. That true faith proceeds from an internal reality of a changed and an altered interior. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is very much a presentation of the King of Israel, of King Jesus, the true King. And the King is now going to give some parameters, some guidelines of what true followers of the King look like. That from now on, that from a, from a changed heart, these attitudes, these actions would just naturally spring forth that you would be identified as a kingdom citizen because you have certain traits, you have certain qualities. And so Jesus opens this really stunning sermon with a little short list of what a kingdom citizen looks like with this new changed heart, an internal reality of, of faith from which then proceeds godly attitudes, godly actions, godly words, and so forth. And he labels this short list of kingdom citizens' attributes as blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so forth. It's a word that simply means to be happy, to be fortunate. But in the context here and in the context really of the whole New Testament, this word for blessed is somebody who is a spiritual success, somebody who is successful, who is favored by God. And of course, this little list here found in the beginning of Matthew 5, they're sometimes called the Beatitudes. And let me just read them to you. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we have this little short list of attributes of someone with true, abiding, genuine, saving faith in God. And let's just walk through them very briefly to kind of prepare these ingredients, and then we'll set them aside. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Well, this speaks of self-abasement. This speaks of the loss of personal pride, which you, you must lose personal pride in order to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. That you had nothing of spiritual value to offer whatsoever. That you came to God on your knees. You came in humility. You came in gratitude for his amazing grace. That you've seen your helplessness. You've seen your worthlessness. You've seen your sinfulness. And in seeing yourself in the correct biblical light, only now... Can you see the worth and the might and the glory of Christ? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What does it mean to be one who mourns? Those who mourn are blessed. Well, this is the one with true abiding faith in God through Christ. Being spiritually poor in spirit now has a godly grief over his sin. There's a sense of grieving. There's a keen awareness of how you've offended a holy God. And there's a, there's a lament. There's a sadness by how badly you've fallen short. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls this in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief which produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It is godly grief. What does it mean to be meek? Well, this speaks of gentleness, of submissiveness, a quiet-heartedness, a tenderness toward God. Meekness is not weakness, It is spiritual strength, but it's spiritual strength which is restrained, which is eager to demonstrate the holiness and the purity of God himself. There's no self-exaltation. There's no fighting spirit. There's no pugnaciousness. There's no sense of pushing back with others. It's like Job 5 verse 11 says that God set on high those who are lowly. There is a lowliness to you if you're meek. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? There's a deep yearning to possess the, the, the goodness and the perfection of the king, to manifest all the qualities of virtue and obedience which Christ always demonstrates. It's the putting aside of our own worthless efforts and to long instead for the glorious character and merit of God. It's an aspiration, if I could put it this way, to be more and more putting away sin and more and more acting like Christ. There's a hunger and thirst to be righteous for all things that are righteous. What does it mean to be merciful? That you now having received the great and tender and wonderful mercy from God in salvation, that this is a quality of naturally desiring to reflect that attribute of God. To reflect God's kindness, his graciousness, his patience. Mercies manifested in a great loving spirit. Mercies manifested in a great forgiving spirit. Mercies manifested in great patience and forbearance and long-suffering. That mercy becomes the norm for you. That's how you view everyone around you is through the eyes of mercy. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, it means, first and foremost, to have a right position before God, not based on having achieved anything, but it is achieved by receiving the gift of faith and being transformed internally. You're, you're pure inside. You positionally are complete. You are done. You are a new person. You are completely made whole. To be in pure heart speaks of your spiritual position before God, of standing in right relation before God. But of course, this positional purity, it it manifests itself in practical purity, that you also not only want to be pure in heart, but you want to manifest purity in all of your actions. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? A peacemaker is not 
an employee of the United Nations. That's not a peacemaker. Peacemaker is one who's come to know and understand that you were born at war with God. You were born in a confrontation. Your sin and your sinfulness have declared war on God, declared war on God's holiness. And your war will end with the righteous and rightful punishment of all of your sin for all of eternity. And so a a peacemaker then has received this grace-given free gift of Christ to pay for a sin and to render him now officially, legally in the halls of heaven at peace with God. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies of God, now we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. And this, this is what drives our gospel message. The gospel message is the message of reconciliation. We are the messengers of peace. We're not the messengers of morality. We're not the messengers of act more like a Christian. We're not the messengers of say things that sound more Christian-y. We're the messengers of reconciliation. That humanity is legally at war with God, but the repentant who wave the white flag of surrender can be brought into right relationship. So the peacemaker is not only at peace with God, but desires to see others brought to that point of peace as well. And then there are the persecuted, the reviled. To be reviled means to be verbally assaulted. In a sinful world which devalues all of the qualities that I just listed, all of the qualities of a true child of God, when those are being manifested, when those are obvious in your life, when all of these of poor in spirit and mourning and so forth are out there, the world will hate you. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So these are the qualities of someone with true, abiding, saving faith in Christ. You're poor in spirit. That's self-abasement and loss of personal pride. You mourn. You have a godly grief over your sin. You're meek. You're, you're gentle, submissive, quiet-hearted. You're, there's a tenderness toward God. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You yearn to obey and to act like Christ, to reflect his goodness and his perfection. You demonstrate mercy. You're merciful. Having received great mercy from God, you deeply desire and you naturally demonstrate mercy to others. You're pure in heart. This is the positional purity, the practical purity of the true believer. You're a peacemaker. Having made peace with God, you desire to impart that message of peace to others, to be a messenger of peace. And if you're persecuted and reviled, you incur the hatred of the world. The world does not understand you. They don't like you. They don't want anything to do with you because you're different. Now, we've prepared all of those ingredients put it in a big bowl, and we're going to just set it aside and come back and use it in a little while. Turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And this preaching mini-series in John 8 and 9 that we've called What the Hymn Writers Know, this was born out of a presupposition, an assumption. We believe very strongly in the use of hymns in the life of the church, the life of the Christian, since it is the hymn that goes all the way back in Scripture to the early church as a means to offer worship to God, to rehearse in detail the truths of our faith. And so I made an assumption, I made a presupposition that 
the theological or thematic emphasis that we would see in each individual section in John 8 and 9 would have a corresponding hymn which illustrates and rehearses that truth. And sure enough, by God's gracious hand, hymn writers have in fact reflected every one of the themes that we've seen in John 8 and 9 so far. And the major theme, if not the major theme in the text we're considering today, which is John 9, 13 through 34, really the biggest middle section there, the biggest theme here is faith. It is faith. And there's an irony, there's a paradox at play here in this story that those who believe they have spiritual eyes are in fact the blind ones, but the ones who are humble and admit spiritual blindness in fact have their eyes opened by God to see spiritual truth, that faith is now imparted to them. They have what they need to understand. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the only hope of salvation from sin. That it is by faith that we come to God, not by works, not by self-righteousness, not by any sort of spiritual shrewdness or insight. It is purely by faith that a child, a little bitty child may have faith, that an older person may have faith, and everyone in between. And the wonderful modern hymn that we sang just a few minutes ago beautifully reflects this truth. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design. In the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by what? Not by sight. But you can't see faith. Faith is invisible. Anyone can say, I belong to God. I'm right with God. Anyone can say, I'm a Christian. As a matter of fact, in our culture, you can look up a statement of faith on the internet and you can learn it and anyone can figure out some of our Christian lingo, so to speak, and they can say enough right words to fool us into believing that they are authentic. Listen, in my 20 years as a pastor, I've baptized people that I've come to believe later were not truly in the faith. You can fool us. You can be fooled. But the Bible teaches us that a true believer in Christ has actually undergone a transformation. That this is not so much a proclamation as it is a transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians that you can recognize true believers because we are, quote, renewed in the spirit of our minds, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in Ephesians chapter 4. So what's the evidence of that transformation? Since faith is invisible, since anyone can say, I have faith. What are the telltale signs that somebody has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made into the ever-growing likeness of Jesus Christ? Well, we'll let our recently healed blind man unfold some evidence for us. Jesus has just healed this man who was born blind and we know that last time that the primary purpose of the physical healings that Jesus performed was to prove his power to render spiritual healing, his power, his authority to forgive. And now with this man born blind, John 9 is such an incredible gift to us because basically what we see here is a, a slow motion glimpse into what is happening in this man's heart as he's in the process of getting saved. Have you ever watched those funny videos of slow motion things of a guy getting hit in the side of the head with a soccer ball and you see his face kind of flap around and, and it's fun and you rewind it over and over again. In spiritual terms, 
it's very hard for us to define what actually happens when you get saved. What's that moment like? John 9 is the slow motion version of salvation so we can kind of slow it down and see what's really going on. That he's being changed, that he has his sins forgiven as represented by the healing of his blindness. And so in our text today, we'll see that this man who was just healed, he doesn't have complete understanding yet. We're in the middle of this slow motion. It's almost a frame-by-frame capturing of his changed heart and his changing heart. We see the faith of this man, and I think this is going to be very instructive for us because it's from this text that we can actually extract proofs or evidences of genuine faith. That just saying, I'm right with God, is worthless. That's not evidence. Just deciding that you're right with God, that doesn't mean anything. And I've spoken with enough of you to know that sometimes in times of doubt, and we even read in in 2 Peter 1 this morning, times of doubt where perhaps maybe you're not exhibiting those virtues of Christ-likeness that you would like to. And we saw in 2 Peter 1 that what that actually does is it makes you forget that your sins are forgiven. It takes away your assurance of salvation. And so it's my hope that if there are those of you who are saved this morning among us that are having those doubts, that you're looking in the mirror and wondering at that moment of death, am I going to be surprised by the worst horrific surprise in human history to find out that I wasn't in the faith? Well, this morning, this blind man, man formerly blind, is going to help us. He's going to give us three evidences of authentic faith in Christ. Three evidences. Let's just go ahead and take in the whole passage so that we can know the context of the story. I'll begin in verse 13 of John chapter 9. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. You remember that he made mud and put it on the man's eyes and he washed and he then was able to see. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. In the margin, you can write, duh, there next to it. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
That bad choice of words there. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Again, in the margin, right, duh. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in other sin, would you teach us? And they cast him out. The first evidence of authentic faith we could simply call your beliefs. Your beliefs. And we have to start here. This is what you now wholeheartedly endorse, what you advocate, what bears witness to your spiritual status before God. This is not what you say you believe. This is what you really, in your heart of hearts, now believe. Now, what did this man believe with all of his heart? Well, first, he believed Jesus to be a prophet. Now, why would this be important, that he believes him to be a prophet? A prophet is a divinely appointed representative of God. He didn't know much more than that yet. That was just the conclusion he came to. And so this man is brought to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a subset of Jews who lorded spiritual control over the masses. They believed that right religious piety was made up of not only obeying the law of Moses, but more importantly to them, obeying the long list of oral religious traditions they had developed over the centuries. They were very much focused on on the external. They were focused on what you do, on doing that which makes you appear holy, appear righteous with no thought to the heart. And so they're trying to catch Jesus breaking one of their traditions. Since he made mud to heal this blind man and he did it on the Sabbath, now maybe they would have an excuse to finally accuse and murder Jesus as Christ himself had exposed was actually the intention of their heart. Back in John chapter 7, And so this man is brought to the Pharisees to be questioned. And and just note, they don't care about this man. They couldn't care less about him. They're trying to use him to nail Jesus somehow. And I want you to notice something. Did you notice that there's no rejoicing on his behalf? There's no sense of being thrilled that you have, he has never seen color. He's never seen the sky. He's never seen a river. He's never seen a tree. And today he's seen it all. There's no sense of being excited that this poor blind beggar has literally had his life given back to him. Instead, they interrogate him and they're suspicious. How did you receive your sight? In verse 15, the man was simple and straightforward. He just recounted what happened. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. There's sort of an implied, I don't know why you're trying to make this more complicated than it really is. Now, and I love this, and this is rare, but some of the Pharisees got into an argument with one another. In verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God since he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? The, the basic debate was Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath, which is not accurate, by the way. He didn't keep their made-up rules about the Sabbath. And yet, a mere human sinner couldn't possibly perform this miracle. So they're in the midst of a conundrum, of a paradox here. And so the Pharisees were not completely unified. And I love taking this little passage, and it reminds me of Acts chapter 15. There's a a little 
bitty phrase in Acts 15 when we're going ahead now beyond the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and now we're into the early part of the church age, and this little phrase in Acts 15 identifies Pharisees who are now believers in Christ. Maybe some of them were here listening to this conversation. But in this context, if any group was going to going to believe they weren't dominating right now at this moment. It was the wicked men who were dominating. Those who were determined to believe the worst about Jesus now control the conversation. And so, turning away from one another and the, those, these supposed great leaders of Israel, they ask this formerly blind beggar his spiritual opinion. Who do you, what do you say about Jesus? And his answer is a simple one. He is a prophet. He is a prophet. He agrees with the one faction of the Pharisees that say that this man must be from God, that a normal man couldn't do these signs. The, the man didn't fully grasp at all who Jesus was yet, but minute by minute, his eyes are growing wider and wider as they're opening. And so to get around this paradox, the, the leaders decided that there must be some mistake. This can't possibly be the man born blind. It has to be somebody else. They're going to find any and every human explanation, just like liberals do about the Bible, that they can't possibly believe that Jesus actually did these miracles. They can't possibly believe that God would do the plagues in Egypt. So we're going to find naturalistic explanations. They can't possibly believe that God could create everything in six days. So we have to invent this heresy called evolution. And so the Pharisees are no better. They can't possibly believe that a man born blind could be healed. And so they say, it must be somebody else. And so they call the man's parents to testify. Aha, this will do it. We'll find out that he's actually just in the next town over. But they confirm, yes, this man is their son. Yes, he was born blind. And yes, he now sees. But they certainly weren't going to get on the Pharisees' bad side at all. And so they tell a straight-up lie to the Pharisees. Verse 21. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, how do we know that they're lying? Well, verse 22 tells us, that they already knew that the Jewish leaders were threatening to excommunicate from synagogue fellowship anyone who proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. They knew exactly who healed him. But they're playing dumb because this would mean being cut off from the social and the religious life of Israel. They would be treated as outcasts and they knew that Jesus was the one that healed him. And yet because of their desire for social status, their desire to keep all of their religious fraudulent friends, they lied. By the way, if you just simply compare this man born blind and, and his parents, we can see another one of his beliefs. First, Jesus is a prophet. The second one of this man's beliefs is you don't deny Christ if he is from God. You don't deny Christ if he is from God. You can put any negative verb you want in there. You don't, you can't, you shouldn't, you better not. But you don't deny Christ if he is from God. And what a contrast. This humble man, he'd been a beggar his entire adult life, clearly with parents who were ashamed of him. How do we know that they're ashamed of him? He's begging in the streets instead of his mom and dad helping him. They had abandoned him, and this humble man asserted, Jesus is a prophet of God, while his parents said, we don't know anything about him. 
Listen, I find great irony here that their son who had been blind from birth is seen and all they can do is be blind to Christ. All they can do is think about their social standing. They're not rejoicing with him. If your son who was born blind is healed, aren't you going to go to the ends of the earth to find the man who did this? To thank him, to fall on your knees, to grab a hold of him and say, how can I know you like my son knows you? But they're not rejoicing. By the way, this contrast between the blind man and his parents is a perfect illustration of Jesus' warning that he gave in Mark eight thirty eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so the Pharisees bring this man back a second time. Verse 24, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And here's the delicious irony here. The Pharisees tell this man to give glory to God by denying Christ. And the man does give glory to God by refusing to deny Christ. They said give glory to God and he did it. Just not the way they wanted him to. Now this guy doesn't come claiming to be a theological expert. He's not a teacher of Israel and he just met Jesus for the first time so he doesn't claim to have total knowledge of his life, of his conduct. In verse 25 he says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I've never been around the guy. I just met him. But have I mentioned that though I was blind, now I'm seeing? And he just keeps bringing this up. And so they ask him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? That shows us another belief the man now had. First, he believed Jesus was a prophet sent by God. Second, you don't deny Christ if he's from God. And the third belief is that Jesus' miracles prove that he's from God. His miracles prove that he's from God. And now this poor beggar is, is flabbergasted. He's astounded. He's dumbfounded at how spiritually blind these so-called spiritual leaders are. In verse 27 I, can't, I still can't believe he said this out loud. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. This is a guy who like 20 minutes ago was a beggar. Why would you, why do you, do you want to hear it again? What an innocent question. Maybe they just needed more explanation. Why? Do you also want to become his disciples? Wrong thing to say. And they pounced on him. They reviled him. They verbally cut him down. And they proudly proclaimed, we are disciples of Moses. You know what? Jesus had already condemned them. He said, you're liars. Because in John 5, 46, he said to these same men, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Where did he write? I dealt with this in detail when we were in John 5, but just as a reminder, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, listen to what God told Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There was a prophet coming. It was Messiah. And so this man is just dumbstruck by their ignorance. Verse 30, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's like the man is saying, All right, A, he did something that nobody can do, B, you can't figure out where he comes from. C, you guys are idiots. What other option is there? 
And the Pharisees were obsessed with finding a hole somewhere in this guy's story. So they kept saying over and over again, how did he give you your sight? How did he give you your sight? How did he give you your sight? And the man's saying, you're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of how. The matter is, where did this guy come from who can do this? And he calls him on it. And here's the man's simple theological reasoning in verse 31. It's not sophisticated, but it's logical based on what he knows. He says in verse 31, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So this is his reasoning. God doesn't listen to someone who's a sinner. And since God obviously listened to Jesus, since God gave Jesus the power to do something that was unheard of, then obviously this man is from God. Conversely, by the way, this man born blind had been under the lifetime stigma that he must be a really, really terrible sinner. His blindness represented the fact that he had no favor with God, no grace from God, that he was among the worst of the worst of the worst. That he must be a sinner of the worst variety, and certainly he had prayed prayers. What do you pray when you think you're the worst sinner of all and you're under God's judgment? You pray for forgiveness. You pray for help. And he concludes his simple theological argument with the reasoning that if Jesus is not from God, he could not heal the blind miraculously. In verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That is an airtight theological argument. And so, like all people who hate righteousness do, when they run out of logic, they turn to abuse. The fangs and the claws of the self-righteous Pharisees came out. Their true belief about themselves and about this man is revealed. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in other sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They believed about themselves that they possessed the favor of God, and they believed about this man that he was born in other sin. What does that mean? It means they're telling him, you deserved the blindness. You were born completely in sin. Now, of course, they didn't face the fact that according to their own belief system, the fact that he is now not blind means that he is forgiven. But they don't face that fact. The Pharisees were the experts on the word of God. They were the specialists on what to look for in the coming Messiah. And yet, because the Holy Spirit was not opening their eyes, despite the clear evidence before them, they refused to believe. They questioned the unquestionable. They contested the incontestable. They disputed the indisputable. They refused, refused, and refused. But not the man born blind. This was as obvious as the nose on his face, which, by the way, he had just seen for the first time recently. So what did he believe? He believed, first, that Jesus is a prophet sent by God. He believed, second, you don't deny Christ if he's from God. And third, Jesus' miracles prove that he's from God which is, by the way, the theme of the entire Gospel of John, that his miracles prove he's from God. And so the the first evidence of authentic faith in Christ is your beliefs, not what you say you believe, what is really the deepest down in your mind and in your heart. The beautiful hymn written in 1860, which all of you have the first verse memorized, Jesus Loves Me. Christians and non-Christians alike sing this hymn, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. 
But most people don't ever sing the rest of the hymn. The rest of the hymn, the writer clarifies who it is that Jesus loves. Those who will come to him, those who will receive him as the light and life, those whose sins are washed away, and those who believe that Jesus died to pay sin's penalty. Just saying Jesus loves me is pointless. What you believe about Jesus is evidence of true faith. But you can't necessarily see what someone believes, and so what other evidence would point to authentic faith? Well, first, your beliefs. Second evidence we would call your behaviors. Your behaviors. Now, remember a few minutes ago, we did some preparation in understanding from Jesus himself the qualities of someone with true, abiding, saving faith in Christ. Well, let's get that prepared mixture, and now we're going to mix it in. And we're going to incorporate what we, what we learned into our finished product. If this man who was born blind has a faith in Christ that is authentic, that is real, that is genuine, that is a, a work of regeneration that we're seeing happen in slow motion. If we're watching his spiritual eyes be opened right before our own eyes, we should expect to see the evidences of kingdom citizenry, of someone who is loyal to King Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. And so we would ask the questions, we'd go through the checklist. Is this man poor in spirit? Poor in spirit speaks of self-abasement and loss of personal pride necessary to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, the man says in verse 25, I was blind and now I see. He doesn't say, I deserve this. He just said, I was blind. He gives all credit, all glory to Christ. He didn't even know Jesus was around. John 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Jesus picked him up. Jesus chose him. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus healed him. He is poor in spirit. Is this man one who mourns, one who has godly grief over his own sin? Well, his parents clearly rejected him as a sinner. They clearly were fine with him being rejected by the community of faith. He knew what his blindness meant, according to the prevailing view of his time, that he was the worst variety of sinner ever. Listen, if you believe that your sinfulness made you blind and you're crying out to God, what are you going to say? You're going to say, God, I'm so sorry for my sin. I must be so horrible. I don't believe for a moment that when Jesus met this blind man, that this was the very first time that the blind man thought about his spiritual state and his need for a Savior. His heart was so clearly prepared that literally the day that he was healed, he began proclaiming Christ. Is this man meek? Meekness speaks of gentleness, submissiveness, a quiet-heartedness, a tenderness before God. In verse 24, the, the Pharisees tried to get the man to take a theological position regarding Jesus. Honestly, the man had very little knowledge of Jesus except that he had healed him. So he didn't try to suddenly be spiritually astute. He didn't try to be proud. He just said, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. He was asked a question, and he said, I don't know the answer to that question. He was meek. He was gentle. Does this man hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, a, to have a, a deep yearning to possess and reflect the goodness and the perfection of the king? Well, at this point, the man still doesn't have the full picture. What he does know is that Jesus is a prophet. He's sent by God, representing God. But that's about as far as it goes. 
But after this scene, if we take a little sneak peek at the next passage, Jesus comes and finds him. And he asks him in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which the man would know meant, do you believe in the Messiah of God who is prophesied to come? And was the man apathetic? Was he indifferent? Did he not care? No. He said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He had a hunger to know Christ. He had a thirst for righteousness. Is this man merciful? Is he merciful? He's received such great mercy from God. Is this quality of naturally desiring to reflect God's kindness and graciousness going to be reflected in his life? How soon is it going to, how long is it going to take? Moments. When the Pharisees are asking the man again and again how it is that he is seeing now, the man asks this innocent and beautiful question that only a new believer would do. Do you also want to become his disciples? How merciful was he to ask that? It's an innocent question. Why wouldn't everybody want to follow Jesus? The man doesn't even yet have full knowledge of the identity of Christ, and yet the evidence that Christ is from God and was gracious to him leads him to immediately see if anybody else wants to follow Christ also. I have often said and often observed that sometimes the greatest evangelists in the Christian church are the brand new believers in Christ. The brand new believers. He has received mercy and he wants others to have it as well. And who knows if God was not gracious to save some of those Pharisees through that question. Is the man pure in heart, the positional and the practical purity of the believer? This guy comes off almost childlike in ways. He's so innocent. He doesn't care who the Pharisees are. He doesn't mind immediately identifying himself with Christ. There's no, there's no sense of thinking about it. He just identifies with Christ. In verse 27, when he says, do you also want to become his disciples? Meaning, I'm a follower of Christ. Don't you want to be one also? He didn't take an evangelism class. He wasn't discipled. He didn't sit under Bible teaching. He didn't go to a good, solid church. He just knew that Christ saved him, and he wanted others to hear that message. And clearly, his heart has been enlivened to understand at a basic level who Christ is. As a matter of fact, it seems obvious to him in verse 31, he says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's obvious. He's, he's pure in heart. He understands this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he gives the reason the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This man had a spiritual discernment now that he didn't have moments earlier. Is this man a peacemaker? He's made peace with God through Christ. Is he a messenger of peace? Verse 34, the Pharisees revile him saying, you are teaching us. Yes, he is. He teaches the Pharisees in verses 30 through 33. He's trying to get them to see that Jesus is from God and therefore should be seriously considered. This man is in the midst of making peace with God himself. Verse 38 will complete that process. And he's trying to convince the Pharisees to make peace with God as well. He's not being argumentative. He is being a peacemaker. He is trying to get them to be at peace with God. And is this man persecuted and reviled? Is he incurring the, the wrath and the hatred of the world because of demonstrating all of these other qualities, the qualities of true saving faith? 
Verse 28, they reviled him. They verbally assaulted him. Verse 34, you were born in other sin, meaning entirely, completely, fully, meaning when they say you were born in other sin, you are as sinful as a human being can be. And they cast him out. The very punishment that his parents sinfully avoided, he now freely takes. And so for the sake of Christ, he would endure social and religious castigation and rejection by his own people. And you notice that unlike his parents, he didn't try to avoid this. He endured suffering for the sake of Christ. Listen, the elements, the signs of a kingdom citizen were demonstrated in his life literally the day he was saved. Quite amazing. So did this man's life, did his behavior his behaviors give evidence of the genuineness of his faith. According to the standards Jesus set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, he did. He did demonstrate those standards. What other evidence points to authentic faith? First, your beliefs. Second, your behaviors. And third, I'm going to call this your brotherhood. Your brotherhood. If you have or had younger siblings, particularly when all of you were little, younger siblings do something they like to mimic older siblings. Some of you who are the oldest in your family growing up, you remember that. Some of you who are the youngest, you innocently say, well, why would I do that? This can be very irritating to an older sibling, but it's a natural phenomenon that the younger wants to imitate, wants to mimic the older, that the younger want to be like the older. The, the younger children want to be like their older sisters, their older brothers. The Apostle Paul, in his great explanation of salvation in Romans 8, 28 through 30, he explained that the saved, those with genuine faith in God, have been predestined. It's a word that means literally foreordained, forechosen. Predestined to what? Quote, to be conformed to the image of his Son, to become more and more like Christ. Why? Verse 29 gives the why. In order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so the person who has come to real, true, genuine faith in Christ would be expected naturally to begin to copy, to mimic, to become more and more conformed to Christ, to be more and more like him. And this man born blind wastes no time whatsoever in doing this. As a matter of fact, the answers and the speeches that this man gives to the Pharisees, they're shockingly similar to things that his new older brother Jesus has said. And just compare what he said to what Jesus preached. It's like you're listening to the little brother mimic and imitate Jesus. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That in other words, to, for someone who is uncertain about the identity of Jesus, he said, here's my proof that he must be something special. I was blind and now I see. Matthew chapter 11 records the fact that John the Baptist, he was in prison and he needed confirmation. He needed, he was having a moment of doubt and he needed to be certain that this man, Jesus, was in fact the Messiah. And so he sent he sent to, to Jesus messengers to ask him, are you the one? Is it really, really you? In Matthew eleven four and 5, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Proof that he is from God. Verse 27, this man born blind said, I, 
I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? John 8, 43, Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Second half of verse 27, the man born blind says, Do you also want to become his disciples? In other words, do you want to follow him? A disciple is a learner, somebody who follows after his master. Oh, we definitely recognize the voice of Christ in this. Over and over again, Matthew 4.19, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 8.22, Jesus said, follow me. Matthew 9 verse 9, he told Matthew, follow me. Matthew 10 verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 19.21, if you want to have treasure in heaven, follow me. John 1, 43, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world, follow me. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What did the man ask them? Hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Somebody says, well, I need to take a long evangelism class. No, you don't. Just ask people, do you want to follow Jesus? Verse 30, The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Jesus told Nicodemus, the lead teacher of Israel, in John 3, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. John 15, verse 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 32, the man says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. John 15, 24, Jesus said, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Verse 33, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This man sounds like a little Jesus. An amazing, amazing thing that he could possibly, not possibly do on his own. He's like a little Christ. We translate the word little Christ into English, Christian. The little brother of the Son of God. I imagine Jesus at some point pulling him aside saying, not bad. Not bad. But one little note, by the way. To our knowledge, this man had never heard Jesus preach. His knowledge of Jesus was zero, and yet by faith he immediately began emulating Christ, emulating the message of Christ. So if we're testing the genuineness of this man's faith, his beliefs, check. His behaviors, check. His brotherhood, check. And as a matter of fact, the Pharisees did get one thing right. They told the man born blind in verse 28, you are his disciple. If somebody tells you in an angry fashion, you're a Christian, you say, thank you. Praise God that my witness came forth to you. All of humanity is at the top of a cliff. We're moving slowly forward in line 
One by one, each person is pushed off the cliff in that endless drop of your own death, your own demise. And in that line, there are only two types of people. There are people with a parachute, the ones who have the saving grace of Christ to have forgiven you of your sin and to provide a safe landing off of that cliff. And the other type of person is there are people without a parachute, those who will plunge to their eternal destruction. And how often people without a parachute like to hang around the people with a parachute. And they'll even say, certainly I have a parachute. Look how wonderful I am. Look how deserving I am. I must have a parachute. I act just like the people who have parachutes. I'm just like them. Let me get closer so I can look like and feel like and act like and speak like I have a parachute. And as the cliff gets closer and closer, people with parachutes are calling out to those around them, make sure you have a parachute. Hanging out next to me doesn't do anything for you. And in pride and not wishing to be humiliated, not wishing to admit, some without parachutes keep lying to themselves and proclaiming louder and louder, I have a parachute, I have a parachute, I have a parachute. But they don't. And then at the plunge off the cliff to their own death, it's too late. And they tell the Lord, but Lord, I looked like someone who had a parachute. Matthew seven twenty two. did I not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will expose who they really are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They didn't believe. Their behavior didn't demonstrate their new heart. And they did not have Jesus as their older brother. As a matter of fact, he'll say, I never knew you. I never knew you. My hope and prayer is that every one of you passes these tests. But I do know that Jesus promised that in the church of Jesus Christ, the weeds will grow up with the wheat. That there will be people without parachutes who hang out with those with the parachutes. But may you be the one who passes those tests who either has already or would right now accept the invitation given by Christ himself What a beautiful invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, so that by faith you will see the hand of God. That is my prayer for each one of you. Our Father, it is by faith and by faith alone that we have come to you We express our gratitude to you now for salvation. We were the blind man laying on the side of the road who didn't even see that Jesus was coming by. And yet in your graciousness, you stopped. You opened our eyes. You taught us who you are and you helped us to believe. You helped us to behave and you said, I'll be your brother. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin which you have so freely offered. I would pray now for a man or a woman right now may be wrestling with their own conscience, wrestling with their own heart. Do I have the parachute or not? Oh, Lord, let this be the moment that they make certain, that they repent, that they ask the Lord to open their spiritual eyes. And, Lord, for those precious believers among us who may not be walking in a manner that's worthy of you, that may be rebelling in various ways, that are not carrying on the, the qualities as described in Second Peter 1, And now they have lost their assurance. I pray that you would return to them the obedience, the behaviors, the beliefs that characterize them at the beginning of their walk with you, Lord. Remind them of who they are. Help them, Lord, to obey 2 Corinthians 
13, to examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith and that they might repent of those things that look so ungodly and look so unlike Jesus Christ. That husbands might stop not loving their wives. Wives might stop not honoring their husbands. That children might obey their parents. That we might be godly employees and employers. That we might watch our tongues. That we might stop gossiping, stop reviling, stop looking down on others. But that we might take on those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are peacemakers and those who are merciful and those who are gentle. That we might exhibit the qualities of kingdom citizenry in proof of our salvation. We love you and thank you for the truths that you have presented this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.